This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Masao Nakamura, Professor Emeritus of Commerce and Business Administration at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Nakamura is most recently the author of Japan's Ultimately Unaccursed Natural Resources Finance Industrialization in the March 2018 volume of Journal of the Japanese and International Economies. Dr. Nakamura, thank you for talking with me today. Oh, you're welcome. So I was hoping maybe we could talk about how business and finance in Japan changes with the Meiji Restoration and throughout the Meiji period and leading up to today. Yes, until I'd say uh, 1868, the main uh, businesses are really uh, based on individual merchants. In Tokyo, uh, called Edo at that time, biggest one is Mitsui family, and they focused on uh, textile, particularly silk products, and also uh, some financing in the later periods of uh, Edo era. In Osaka, there's a Sumitomo family, which was running the uh, copper business for a long, long time, since uh, probably in in the 1500s. And they, of course, they were the biggest uh, copper merchants, and also they uh, operated a large uh, copper mine called the Beshi Mine, now a tourist attraction in Shikoku Island. So towards the uh, beginning of uh, Meiji period, a newer uh, family business emerged, uh, Mitsubishi, and and, and quite a few others. But without any uh, economic development, that's probably where they ended. But at that time, there was a massive desire on the part of uh, not just Meiji government, uh, but also all other leaders uh, in Japan, they really wanted to catch up with the West. The difference uh, between Japan at that time and the West uh, was so obvious to them. So they did collectively decide to really develop Japan. And it was at that time that New Meiji government also decided to invest massively in so-called modern technologies and new industries. So they did invite uh, many Westerners, engineers, and otherwise to uh, Japan. And also, uh, Meiji government established so-called uh, state-owned enterprises in many fields, in many areas of Japan. Actually, uh, traces of which are still very visible at this time uh, in different parts of Japan. Uh, so uh, they did uh, invest huge amounts, and the amounts uh, was enormous relative to their budget. But they did. But over time, these state-owned enterprises, SOEs, did develop in terms of technology and production and so on. So they were successful at the outset to bring in Western technologies into Japanese industries and so on. But they had very little in terms of management skills. They didn't know very basic things. You know, they used single-entry bookkeeping rather than double entry, which is a modern system. And basically, it was all put in the same pot. In Japanese, it is called a donburi kanjo. And they didn't really see which <laughs> parts of which enterprise is making money, which is losing money, by how much, and none of those things. So over time, towards the middle of Meiji period, these state-owned enterprises really began to uh, become a a financial burden on the Meiji government in terms of budget. And it it became obvious to anybody that this is a problem. 
And at that time, they decided, the Ministry of Finance and so decided to uh, uh, do something about this. And they decided that the only thing they could do to get out of this mess was to sell all of these, basically all of these state-owned enterprises, which they began. Uh, and that was the beginning of a new period as far as economic development is concerned. So they did try. Initially, they, uh, since they didn't know what the, these enterprises are worth, uh, they just uh, overcharged uh, for the initial prices, and nobody wanted to buy them. But later, they did work out uh, what might uh, make them attractive. So they did revise the prices, and they also did look at uh, potential buyers who might be more interested because of the future prospects and so on. And it was at this time that many of these merchants, traditional merchants like Mitsui particularly, and then then already uh, emerged family uh, groups like uh, Mitsubishi uh, became interested in buying some or many of these enterprises. So that's when these uh, traditional merchant families began getting involved in more modern industries, or if they were already involved, they began getting hold of new technologies which were imported uh, from the West. And in fact, Western technologies imported by the Meiji government became really the immediate uh, core of the, these operations that came with, uh, with these enterprises, which were bought by Mitsui family and so on. And it was interesting how that initial start with a failed government effort to develop Japan. And it, it was uh, these enterprises were taken over by traditional families, and they uh, became interested because they saw a massive profit prospects. So what they did, like Mitsui and Mitsubishi and so on, was to really uh, take this uh, opportunity as an advantage, and they massively invested in uh, areas of different industries which they thought would help develop their own, first of all, their own uh, company groups. And they probably did have some notions that this would be uh, important for the national goal of economic development. So that's the beginning of these merchants turning into more uh, industry-based company groups. Initially, they had finance coming from uh, traditional sources of money, like Mitsui. They had a significant amounts of their own money, but also since they purchased enterprises in coal mining, that became a very big cash cow for the Mitsui group to begin with. And similarly, for example, Mitsubishi family, Iwasaki family, bought many uh, promising mines, many of which actually uh, uh, were operating until fairly recently, and they, they again, began earning uh, significant amounts of money. Now, they didn't uh, just invest uh, those profits from mining operations into uh, the mining again. They, they really uh, moved the money from uh, the mining to more promising future uh, industries, uh, which started with typically... Uh, areas surrounding coal mines. You know, so they need, needed uh, electrical equipment, they needed uh, chemicals uh, which can take advantage of coal output and so on. So they started from that area, but then they eventually expanded those into newer uh, industries. And uh, they did it very fast. This was very important that within each of these family merchants' operations, uh, 
there was only one decision maker, and that is a family. Uh, and they made quick decisions and invest and so on. And that part of the economic development process is something very important. No, nowadays in economics, it's called a, a big push-based development. So what is generally thought necessary, we think now, for economic development is really a, a massive and rapid investments in all relevant areas so that there's no gap in terms of uh, timing or areas that were needed. Originally, this big push theory was proposed much later by economists, in, and they thought that such massive coordinated investments could only be done by government, in the public uh, sector. And uh, as it turned out, uh, historic, economic historically, many of, uh, actually all of the uh, such uh, big push attempts by the government failed, except Japan in the Meiji period. So this was one of the uh, examples that were often presented you know, as a counterexample. But then the interesting thing here is that actually the process uh, was uh, really very much uh, facilitated by the efforts at individual family business groups. This time that uh, Mitsui family in the uh, late 1800s to early 1900s, but they uh, did decide to study Western organizations. They did send a delegation to uh, Britain and, and Europe, and they did find uh, this st structure called uh, uh, pyramidal business groups. It works very well, and it, it actually suits their existing house rules or house structure of the business. Now, pyramidal business groups were already very commonly used in UK or Europe or United States, and they all became huge businesses. So it was at this time that business pyramids were used to reorganize Mitsui family companies or some all others, Mitsubishi and so on. And it's uh, at this time that they, uh, you know, they took advantage of a newly merged major government-driven legal institutions to make uh, organizations like business pyramids, you need a, a reasonably well, so, you know, very solid legal foundations. So towards the end of the Meiji period, you know, the constitution wasn't there yet, but they did introduce a commercial, first commercial code, a civil code, and so on, and the later Meiji constitution. So those uh, legal uh, institutions were beginning to be put in place, and that made it uh, comfortable uh, for Mitsui and other business families to rely on so-called uh, limited liability, so they won't be uh, liable for all the future losses and so on. And so what they ended up have, uh, having is really uh, reorganize their business activities and business operations in, in this umbrella called uh, business pyramid. And, uh, in that, generally, the top is always a family owner who controls 
all the companies below it. But the way it is structured is that the family owner sets up a number of very important first-tier subsidiaries in which they own, in principle, they, all they have to own is 51%. And the other 49%, they could sell to public investors. And for second-tier companies, they create their own subsidiaries. And uh, each of those subsidiaries will be owned 51% by the Mitsui company. And the other 49%, for example, are to be sold to public investors. And so this is the way they are structured. And this is a, really the definition of a business pyramid. So, for example, Mitsui family had the Mitsui uh, partnership, and then they had the, that under that partnership they had these companies. And uh, important thing here is that to make this successful and operational as an organization, they needed a very active stock market because they are going to rely on public investors uh, who will participate in these as minority shareholders. So when they buy, based on, say, IPO shares of a particular Mitsui company, they know that they will never have uh, the power to control that company because it is controlled by Mitsui family. So they're buying into each of these as public investors, uh, knowing that there will be uh, minority shareholders with limited amounts of rights. Uh, but uh, generally, they do want to do that uh, because they see more prospects for future profits. You know, they could, of course, create their own company or they could buy into independent companies, whatever. Uh, but, you know, probably they, they thought that buying into Mitsui family companies, subsidiaries, uh, might give them more profit, even, uh, even though they will con continue to be uh, minority shareholders. So they, they did uh, buy into these Mitsui subsidiaries within the Mitsui pyramid, and that brought in a massive amounts of capital. This is from the public purse. And it is very uh, helpful for Mitsui to develop their own uh, new business groups and particularly as a whole to uh, make very coordinated investments across these subsidiaries in different industries. So that's really the beginning of Japan's uh, so-called Zaibatsu, the uh, business pyramid. They did contribute significantly to uh, Japan's economic development. So once these were put in place, and there are quite a few of them, but in large ones are uh, Mitsui, uh, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, and later a Nissan Group, then there are others that really did help Japan's economic development. And so uh, by 1910, somewhere around there, Japan's economy took off, according to you know, Rostow and so on. So it became more uh, comparable in terms of industrial structures and so on. If you look at, at the other countries, UK or Germany and so on, that looks very similar. So they reached that kind of uh, level. And uh, uh, so in terms of the uh, funding for these massive investments over time, initially Japanese family merchants dependent on uh, resource-based operations, like mo most notably uh, coal, but in case of Sumitomo family, it was copper mine particularly, and so on. But then uh, once they got into the basic modern industries, they did require more funds. And for that, they did use this characteristic of business pyramid, which they successfully created. One thing that might be interesting as an anecdote is uh, Sumitomo family. And Sumitomo 
family never bought any major government state-owned enterprise when all of them were privatized. The reason for that is that Sumitomo really decided they couldn't trust the government. And the reason for that is that initially, well, they were already operating very uh, big copper business, uh, mining, mining itself and also uh, selling all over Japan. But uh, once Meiji government was put in place, they decided that they, they would have to confiscate the Sumitomo copper mines, particularly Beshi mine, uh, which is by far the largest operation in copper. And so they, they did. The Meiji government did confiscate the operation, but then immediately they found that they couldn't run the business. So they came back to the uh, Sumitomo manager, Hirose and so on, that they came back to Sumitomo asking them to run it again, for, for uh, yeah, as they did, which they accepted and they took over the Beshimine and operated uh, just as before. Uh, but then after that, they didn't trust the Meiji government, so they didn't buy any of the uh, privatized government enterprises. But they did invest in these uh, modern technologies and uh, they did create their own business pyramid, which became very huge, as, as we know. So that put the uh, Japanese economy pretty much in the, uh, in the same level as uh, uh, many of the Western uh, countries. business practices, you know, this group-based notions are very, very still strong. And the groups can be created in a variety of ways. You know, for example, if a company is uh, heavily relying on banks, uh, banks tend to have uh, their own client company groupings. Now, of course, uh, there are many large and small K-Risk groups uh, of some sort uh, where they tend to uh, prefer uh, doing business within uh, themselves. So that, I think that's one of the uh, major practices. And uh, more in terms of uh, management practices, it might be uh, interesting to look at. So you know, like uh, after the 1990s, when Japanese manufacturing companies lost global competitiveness uh, very significantly, and uh, they thought that this group-based supplier system might not be working well. You know. So they maybe they want to uh, buy parts from the lowest cost supplier globally. It was proposed, and uh, for example, Nissan, which was taken over by, uh, it wasn't merged, but you know, it was taken over by Renault. Uh, so Nissan's uh, president then clearly proposed and implemented that system to uh, rely more on uh, non-carriers, suppliers. So, you know, my understanding is sometime later they did uh, reorganize uh, former Keritz uh, suppliers, but at the same time, uh, Japanese companies which were heavily relying on Keritz suppliers were complaining about that system themselves. You know, so when uh, global prices are much cheaper than Keritz 
supplier prices, they still have to use catered suppliers, and that's a, that's a burden. <laughs> but anyway, could they have actually given up that practice? Uh, not necessarily. They still have uh, catered group uh, companies. So that's one, uh, one issue. You know, that now they recognize those problems more so than before. And another probably major issue is uh, labor management. And that is uh, actually a major uh, uh, issue even now that because of, of the uh, long-term arrangements between suppliers and assembler and so on, these companies, uh, yeah, they tend to like a longer association with, uh, with uh, workers. And workers like it, and the managers tend to like it. There are a number of uh, polls of these executives or workers, and they tend to like long-term uh, relationships. So that one of the issues I think many companies face now is uh, if that's the case, you know, can they actually implement pay system where employment is, is made secure while uh, payment uh, in wages uh, do not need to go up or uh, stay on a very fixed scale and so on. But I think that's, a, that's still a big issue. You know, like uh, uh, long-term employment tends to allow companies, uh, management, to force uh, workers to work a little longer over time. They tend to have more power over workers. That's still a, a big issue. You know, like uh, Prime Minister Abe is uh, st- uh, struggling to do something about this uh, overworking, so-called overworking, uh, too, too much uh, overtime basically forced on the workers. Now, workers may want some of that, but probably not necessarily such large amounts of overtime, which will take away their own time. Uh, in terms of economic prospects, it is actually not very easy for Japan because of the uh, general population decline, which is known, but which is known. 30 years ago, and actually very little was done even since then. I think uh, I remember many economists uh, thinking that uh, with a smaller uh, work, number of workers, uh, all they need is just increased productivity of each person or whatever. So uh, that should be possible. More women, qualified women working or allowed to work, older people who can work to allow to work, but it is very difficult to implement those thoughts and also uh, Japanese uh, companies' productivity is not very high and it's not being increasing, you know, compared to uh, U.S. or Canada or European countries. Japanese per capita productivity, regardless of how we measure it, is still considerably below so uh, it's natural to look at that issue, but uh, so far, you know, that that hasn't improved. I think uh, I remember. I think now that, uh, that's one of the uh, points that even Prime Minister is uh, talking about. You know, but it's again, it's not an easy uh, task. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.